When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Big Think is an online forum for big ideas from the world's most creative thinkers and doers. With the Think Again podcast, we're in uncharted territory. Short, surprise clips from our interview archives launch spontaneous discussions on everything from life on Mars to whether everyone, yourself included, is a liar. My guests have no idea what to expect, and neither do I. Today, I'm joined by one of England's greatest dramatists, Sir David Hare. He's the author of over 30 plays and has directed for stage, film, and television. His screenplays for The Hours and The Reader were nominated for Academy Awards, and he's just written a penetrating new memoir called The Blue Touch Paper. Welcome to Think Again, David. Thank you very much. I'm terrified. Oh, don't be terrified. It should be fun. So there are a couple of things, a couple of ways I wanted to start getting into this. In your book, you say, and I'm paraphrasing here, that your mother spent much of her life afraid and that you both inherited that fear and have also spent a lot of your life rebelling against it or fighting against it. Or trying to fight it, yeah, not rebelling against it, but trying not to give into it. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, sort of how that has played out in your life. Well, my my mother was brought up in a working-class suburb of Glasgow, which was really rough, you know. I mean, no joke. Glasgow in the 1920s was rolling drunks, maniacs. It was violent, it was extreme. And my mother was therefore convinced that life was extremely dangerous and that the way to survive in life was to keep your head down and not to do anything to draw attention to yourself. And she loathed anything. She just couldn't stand anybody who was boastful or anybody who did anything which made them conspicuous. Therefore, when I made the choice to become a playwright, she just thought, obviously, that I was tempting fate. I mean, why on earth would you do something that so clearly, the more you did it, the more attention you were going to draw to yourself? And it could only, in a profound moral way, and this is really what it was about, in a moral way, it would bring trouble because it was unseemly to do things which attracted publicity. The current craze for celebrity and fame would have absolutely horrified her. She came from a generation that thought that a hidden life was the best life to live. Is that not generally an English cultural trait, a sort of reservedness? I I think it's also a class trait. I don't think you could say it now. In other words, I think Britain has changed out of all recognition in the last 50 years. One of the things that happened is that it became Americanized. And so American values of, you know, as it were, materialism, worship of celebrity, celebration of fame, worship of money, all these things which have long been part of the American dream. Now, we're as crazy for all these things in Britain, but sort of in a really second rate and, (laughs) you know, kind of obsequious way that is absolutely disgusting. I, I, I think we're, we're rotten <laughs> capitalists and we're not very good at it. And so you have a generation of really mean-minded, bad, limited politicians 
who just have got all their ideas from Milton Friedman in Chicago. And all their ideas and values are essentially their idea of American capitalism. We can be pretty crass and cheap over here too. <laughs> At least there is a side to American life which is idealistic and which has an expansiveness about it and which has a democratic urge behind it that everybody has the right to get on. And in Britain, we've kept a lot of the worst of the old system, meaning that it is still very, very difficult, in fact, much harder than when I was born, to progress up through the British class system. You know, when I was winning all these scholarships, I came from a family that wouldn't have had the money to send me to the schools that I went to. But at that time, when I went to university, then of course the government paid and your local authority paid to, for your education. And aristocracy in Britain at the time was being replaced by meritocracy. Now it's much, much harder to progress through the class system in Britain than it was 50 years ago. And that's bad. And while we don't have a formal class system, we also are seeing a growing lack of social mobility, rich, poor gap in this country as well. We are seeing some problems in terms of America becoming well, less Well, you know, what we've got is a class a kleptocracy. In other words, at the top of the society are, are a group of people who are just stealing money. And they're saying they do it because that's the market. But it's not a market, it's a rigged market. And at the moment, you know, last week in Britain, there was a figure, which is that the average chief executive of a large corporation is now earning 180 times what the average employee in his or her company is earning. Now, when that is the ratio, 180 times, that is not industry, that's not business, that is theft. It's just organized theft. And how this class thinks that they can continue to steal from the businesses which they're meant to be serving, I, I, I literally don't understand. And once the proportion is so completely out of whack, then your chances of, as a government, of being able to administer any ideas of social justice or social progress become completely impossible because at the top of the society you have people who are just ripping it off, stealing from it. Right. I want to go in a slightly different direction and then I want to get to the surprise videos that sure. we're going to watch. In your work as a playwright, you say in the book that you often wrote about people's lives that you know were not your own. I wonder whether that has anything to do with what you were saying about your mom's reservedness. Like when you break out right into the <laughs> world, you break out in other people's voices that I, are not your own. Yeah, I've written about a lot of subjects that other playwrights have disdained to write about. In other words, I've written about Aid to the Third World, the Chinese Revolution, the privatization of the British railway system, the war in Iraq, the financial crisis, and these are all subjects that the theatre is not usually thought of as a place that you go to for these things. I think that I chose to write about that kind of subject matter because the world interests me. I was born, or my mother brought me up, in an incredibly boring town. I was born into a very small seaside town with a very high average age. It was a sort of semi-detached town with absolutely no distinguishing features whatsoever. And so for me, the world has always been fascinating. From the moment I left that town at the age of 13 to go to a boarding school, everything about the world engages, interests, involves me. And I've never been, although I've often been depressed, i.e. dissatisfied with myself, I can truly say I have never been bored. I, I have never thought that the world was letting me down by not being interesting enough. 
And one of the great privileges of my job as a playwright is that I've been able to go into communities and ask all sorts of questions and meet all sorts of people because people like talking to playwrights. But it is true in the last few years I've started to want to write, write about myself. Okay, so let's take a look at what the producers have chosen for us. I have no idea what these okay. videos are, and neither Great. do you. This one, to introduce it, is The Psychology of Happiness and Feedback with someone named Sheila Heen, who is a partner at a consulting group and a lecturer on law at Harvard Law School. All right. If you look at the neuroscience, the way that we're wired has a profound effect on how we hear and respond to feedback. We took a look at three variables that are particularly important in terms of your reaction to feedback. The first is your baseline. It's sort of how happy or unhappy are you in the absence of other events in your life? Where's that level that you come back to? It's a scale of one to 10. Some people just live their lives at nine, right? They're just so unbelievably happy and cheerful about everything. This research comes from looking at lottery winners. A year later, they're about as happy or unhappy as they were before they won the lottery. And people who go to jail, a year later, they're about as happy or unhappy as before they went to jail. Now we look at the second variable, which is swing. When you get positive or negative feedback, how far off your baseline does it knock you? The same piece of feedback can be devastating for one person and, you know, kind of annoying for another. And then the third variable is how long does it take you to come back to your baseline? How long do you sustain positive feeling? Or how long does it take you to recover from negative feeling? So taken together, that's where the big variation in sensitivity comes from, that some people are extremely sensitive and other people are pretty insensitive. Um, or maybe I should say even keel. But I suppose if you're insensitive, you don't really care what I call you, so it doesn't matter. So there's a lot in there. Yeah, there's a lot in there. <laughs> well, there are two principal things, yes, about what she's saying. The feedback thing, um, I work in the collaborative arts. I choose to be a playwright rather than a novelist or a poet. And therefore, for me, collaboration is absolutely essential. If I'm working on a movie set or if I'm in a rehearsal, then the whole day what I have written is put under a degree of scrutiny and the actors in particular will say to me, you think that in the interest of the general story you have achieved this scene, but let me tell you from my point of view, playing it as one person in this scene, there is not enough for me here, I haven't got what I want, or I can't make sense of this change. To which I can only respond either by arguing or going back and rewriting in order that the woman or man who's playing this particular part will fit into the general picture and be able to play what they want to play. In other words, they're going to put it under a scrutiny that maybe you have overlooked in your rush to follow the main narrative through. And so you're making adjustments all the time right. and you're accepting feedback. My experience is you can do that from a position of confidence. In other words, if you're confident about what the general movement of the play or film is, then there is no end to the amount of input that you're open to because you know that it will not be destructive because you know that the resilience of the basic idea of what you're doing will see you through and that the thing can't be damaged by minor adjustments. And if you're working with great actors, as I've spent my life working with some of the greatest actors in the world, you're just crazy not to listen to them because what they're going to bring to it is going to be incredibly useful to you. 
So from that point of view, feedback is what I live on. That's, that's my element. An opinion, remember, is the element that any creative person has to swim in. In other words, you know, a play doesn't exist until it's put before an audience. And what the audience's opinion is, is what finishes that play off. You know, when, when people want to become actors, young people, I say to them, you think you're going out there and you're going to create other people. It's going to be creative. I said, half your job is going to be being judged. Half your job is going to be out there and sensing that the audience don't like you. Are you up for that? Do you have the kind of temperament that is going to be able to cope with the dislike of large numbers of people? You're going to fail in certain roles. And when you fail in certain roles in front of people, it's going to be deeply embarrassing, shaming, humiliating, and upsetting. Are you up for that? Are you up for being judged? And that's what working in the collaborative arts involves. Well, let me ask you this, because I understand from your memoir and just from the, the way you write that you're a sensitive person. You know, you yes. are a very sensitive person. So when you were just starting out as a playwright, you know, if somebody had said that to you, if somebody had come and said, like, do you have what it takes? Is your skin thick enough? Would you have recoiled in horror yes. and crawled into a corner? Com completely. I, I, would have, I would not have chosen this job if I, <laughs> if I had known the degree of judgment that it would involve. I have sat in audiences where the audiences rejected the play and did not want to hear what I wanted to say to them. And an extremely pain, it ripped my soul out. There was a night in Seattle where a film of mine was laughed off the screen in 1987 with a test audience and a preview audience. I will never go back to the city of Seattle. But listen, in the, in the time available to us, let's go back to her other point, which is really interesting, the happiness thing, you know, that a year later, the person who's in jail is at the same level of happiness that they were before they were in jail. I'm afraid I think this is true. When you're young, you have a fantasy that you can change and that you can change your life and you will achieve something and then when you achieve that thing that will make a significant difference to your contentment index in other words you're driven by fantasy when you're my age there is no fantasy left you know i am extremely happily married to a completely wonderful woman whom i absolutely adore my children i adore Therefore, my private life could not be any happier than it is. It, there is no fantasy about my... I do not go to sleep dreaming of meeting some other woman who will transform my life. I adore the person that I am with and can imagine no better. Do you see? Nor will I, do I dream of writing a hit play. I've written hit plays. I know what a hit feels like. I've lived through it. It doesn't significantly change your life. You still have to start again and try and write the next one. So I fear that what she says about how the sort of basic level of happiness you have in your life doesn't really change very much. Mm. Oh yes, well. We're done. I guess we are. Let's move on to the next, okay. Today's show is brought to you by Casper Mattresses. Do you sleep? Maybe you don't sleep as much as you'd like to. I know I don't. But if you sleep at all, you know how important it is to have a durable, comfortable mattress that has just the right amount of give for your body. You know, as I know, the horror of the overpriced and uncomfortable bed. The bed where you wake up like, ow, I can't move my neck. Happily, there's Casper. They are disrupting the sleep industry by not disrupting your sleep or your wallet. Their obsessively engineered, shockingly affordable mattresses use both memory foam and latex foam, so no matter how you sleep, your body is perfectly cushioned and supported. 
they deliver. And if you're not happy after 100 days, they'll pick it back up and refund your money. And as Think Again listeners, you can get an additional $50 off your mattress by going to casper.com forward slash think and using the code think at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. This is easy, folks. Casper is making a better mattress at a better price so you can get a better night's sleep. Even if, like me, you are so busy doing what you love that you never get enough sleep ever. And now let's get back to Think Again. Okay, so this is Bill Nye, the science guy, answering an audience question. The audience member has an inheritable disease and wants to know if he should have children. Hello, Bill. My name is William and I have cystic fibrosis. I've always been really excited about the idea of becoming a father in the future, but given that I would definitely at least pass on the faulty carrier CF gene if I had children, do you think it would be irresponsible to do so? Thank you very much. Somebody passed it on to you and you're okay or you're doing okay. It's up to you. It's really your decision. And by you, I mean you and your wife or the woman you choose to have kids with. Just objectively stepping back, people who have kids, that's the greatest thing they ever do. Kids are the most important thing to anybody. So if you really want to have kids and you have a woman who's in with you, who am I to tell you you can't do it? It's also very reasonable to me that in the next even, I'll pick a number, 10 years would be extraordinary, but 30 would not be extraordinary. In the next 15 years, someone has a way to have something akin to a virus carry a gene repair into your cells that would uh, make this condition go away. It's very reasonable. So it's really up to you, sir. It really is. But uh, I, we uh, really appreciate the question. That's, that's, a, that's a burden to carry. You know, anyone who chooses to have a child is choosing to bring a child into a world of uncertainties and a world in which a lot of horrible things happen and are happening and also into mortality. What do you think in general about the ethics of having children in such an uncertain world? Well, can I say first that I think that the way the scientists answered that question was deeply moving. The way Bill Nye says, it's your choice, I think is wonderful. And I think that for a scientist to have the modesty and the self-effacement to say that is very rare. My love of Oscar Wilde and the reason I was drawn to Oscar Wilde, which I say in the book, The Blue Touch Paper, is because he says that morality does not consist of telling other people what to do. It consists of judging what you do yourself. And it is so easy in the world to go around saying, you should do this, you should do that. I disapprove of this person. I disapprove of that person. How can that person have done this? How can that person have done that? That is not what morality is. Morality is about how you behave yourself right. and what your own choices are. I think that's really what he's saying to the questioner. And when I hear that said by somebody who knows as much as he does, I find that deeply moving. Moving on to your question about, well, how can you bring children into this world? <laughs> you know, I say again in the book, The Blue Touch Paper, I believed in the 1950s, like everybody else, that the two great issues facing the world were nuclear weapons, and overpopulation. And in the 50 years since, those two things have slid down the priority. After Nagasaki and Hiroshima, you know, there were books called bomb culture 
in which people said, life has been rendered meaningless by the fact that we have discovered that matter can destroy itself and that at any point some terrible maniac may unleash untold suffering on the world to a degree that we cannot even comprehend, life itself becomes newly meaningless. And so there was a sort of panic about nuclear possibility, an existential panic about who we were and what we were doing on the planet. Okay, this is a planet that can destroy itself. New information after thousands of years, suddenly, 1945, there's this new information. And we seem to have forgotten about that. And I don't understand why that has gone down the scale of things we discuss. Again, overpopulation, you know, all the fashionable concern for the environment and the whale and the melting ice caps and all the rest and global warming is actually all a function of the question about overpopulation, which is a question which nobody addresses at all now. It's simply off the table. Indeed, in China, the only country that ever did anything about overpopulation, they've just suspended the rules. And so it does seem to me the two principal threats to the planet, they're out of fashion now. But I promise you these two questions will come back. Yeah, with the nuclear question of nuclear threat, I guess it's just a matter of the fact that it's not new anymore. And then also that you don't have this brinksmanship going on between the US and the USSR anymore. That arms race ended. But you do have a lot of nuclear material floating around in probably yeah. very dangerous hands. Yeah. But, you know, it was conspicuous when the Cold War ended. You know, there was meant to be some tremendous scaling back of these weapons that would follow. We await. We have not seen much sign of disarmament. Right. You know, and we have massive overcapacity. So, anyway, I'm not going to talk about that. I'm going to yeah, talk yeah, about yeah. my children. Yeah. And obviously, you know, my children have to deal with the problem of mortality in the way that I have to deal with the problem of mortality. So, you know, if the question is, is life worth living at all? <laughs> That, frankly, is a question I would go back to Bill Nye. I think that is for my children to decide, not for me to decide. Right. But plainly, at one point in my life, I did believe that it would be worth their living here. I think that that's a good note on which to right. move on to the next. We have something about Kim Jong-un. Kim Jong-un is not crazy, or at least not in the way you think, with someone named Victor Cha who is the D.S. Song Chair of the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. So you might wonder, what is the main misconception that exists about North Korea? And I guess the one I would focus on is this notion that they are crazy and irrational. The regime certainly operates according to its own very risk-acceptant rationality, so they're much more willing to threaten the whole game because they know that we, meaning the rest of the world, have much more at stake in peace than they do. But they're not crazy. They're, they're quite rational in terms of how they behave. I think another misconception that people have is that somehow this really doesn't matter for the average American because it is this small, kind of harmless country. You know, I think one of the things that you have to remember is this would be harmless if they were not pursuing weapons of mass destruction, and ballistic missiles. But the fact of the matter is, they are on a systematic path to try to create long-range missiles with nuclear warheads that can reach the United States. We just see pictures of a quirky leadership, and we don't have a lot of facts behind that. So these caricatures and these comic strips and these movies that we see 
sort of fill a void of information that at the same time is quite worrying. I mean, the fact that we don't have that information is quite worrying. This clip reminds me of what was called Richard Nixon, who had something called the Madman Theory of Deterrence. In other words, Richard Nixon, when he was in the White House, formulated completely correctly the proposition that it would be crazy to use nuclear weapons. In other words, no rational person can conceive of using nuclear weapons because the destruction would be so great. So Nixon therefore said, the only way the Russians will believe that I might use them is if they believe that I am crazy. He said, we therefore have to convince the Russians that I am mad. And Nixon started behaving in irrational ways. And this was called the madman theory of deterrence. And Nixon invented it. And so a lot of his more curious behavior, he claimed, was in order to make the Russians believe that he was mad enough to use a nuclear weapon. That does seem to me the essence of the nuclear threat. And we obviously have it from Iran. You constantly get this picture. The people in Iran are totally bonkers. They're crazy. They're off the scale. They're mad. Therefore, there is a possibility they might use it. Netanyahu in Israel never, ever, ever says a word that makes him sound like a compassionate human being. He always just says, Israel is right, Israel is right, Israel is right. That is his only message. Because he knows that the nuclear threat will lose its conviction unless he appears to be totally inhuman. And he's doing a brilliant job of appearing to be totally inhuman. He appears to be a totally inhuman leader of his country who has no compassion for other people in Iran or in Palestine. He just seems to be willing to wipe them out. On right. the other hand, from his point of view, the logic is the only way they will be convinced that Israel will use its undisclosed nuclear weapons is if they believe that I'm mad enough to do it. Therefore, I must never show any humanity in public. So he never does. Nuclear weapons drive people into completely crazy positions because the catastrophe of using them is so great that the only way you can say you're going to use them is if you're bonkers. And so it does seem to me that partly what we're doing with North Korea is building up this idea that they're all totally insane in order to make their threat real. And what I totally disagree with what he said is when he says um, they have less to lose than we do and therefore they're more belligerent. I mean, come on, I do not think that is the history of the world. In other words, yeah. you know, America has been putting itself about for the last 60 years and intervening in all sorts of wars all over the world with catastrophic results. If they've heard the neighbors quarreling next door, they've said, we can go in and sort the marriage out. Well, they haven't succeeded in doing it in a single household so far. And yet they go on throwing their power around when, you know, as we saw, um, Americans have a great deal to lose by throwing that power around. So I think the theory that it's only when you've got a little to lose that you use your power, I think that's crazy. I mean, the other thing is our perspective on North Korea, again, we have very little information, but some of the stuff that we do know or that we think we know at any rate about how the society is constructed and the sort of cult of personality around Kim Jong-il and then Kim Jong-un, that does seem like a kind of madness, maybe a calculated madness on the part of the leadership. But from the perspective of just about any Western society, it seems like they're living yeah, it, in a crazy it's a, it's, dream. It's, it's, it's of a some means kind. of retaining control. But on the other hand, you know, my prime minister is currently negotiating with the Chinese and he who says he will not deal with abhorrent regimes. 
Well, if you look at the Chinese Communist Party, they have only one aim in their every action. And the aim of the Chinese Communist Party is to perpetuate the power of the Chinese Communist Party and to make sure that the Chinese Communist Party never yields an inch of control. And yet, for some reason, we are willing to deal with the Chinese and not call them crazy, mad, or bad, because we can make commercial profit out of it, and it will be good for Britain, it will bring money into Britain. And so we deal with them, however abhorrent their human rights record, but we won't deal with the North Koreans. But the idea of a single monolithic party that says the purpose of Chinese policy is to maintain our party is a form of insanity just as great as anything in North Korea. David Hare, thank you so much for being with me today, thank talking you. about nuclear weapons yeah. and mortality and, uh, you, you know, sensitivity. You chose some good ones. Um, I didn't. I had nothing to no, do with it. No, but they weren't frightening. They were great. That's, that's Lovely excellent. Lovely questions. It's been great talking to you. And you. Thanks thank so you much. very much indeed. So that wraps our first show of 2016, which, if I have anything to do with it, is going to be an awesome year for Think Again. Thank you so much for making 2015 such a great year by listening and connecting with us on Twitter and talking to me about what you're liking and what you want to hear on the show and for taking the time to go to iTunes or anywhere you're listening and rating and reviewing the show, which makes a big difference in terms of who can discover it. Next week, we have the father of multiple intelligence theory, Howard Gardner, the psychologist. It's a really great show, and we'll see you then.